if scripture were a mountain range, it would be one of, this would be one of the highest peaks. This is Mount Everest in Nepal. This is Denali in Alaska. This is Mauna Kea in Hawaii. This text is a pinnacle of theological truth piercing the heavens. And I want to warn you to be careful because this is nosebleed high doctrine. Christology, the study of the person of Christ. Now, when I was in seminary, there was a big debate about how to teach Christology. Should we teach it from the top down or the bottom up? In other words, should we start with the divinity of Christ and work down to his humanity on earth? Or should we start with his humanity and work up to his divinity? And there were some, some profs, some professors who, who had some real theological fights over this. Don't worry, they, you know, no one got hurt. They just kept readjusting their glasses in anger. And, and you ask Kyle, where do you stand on this? Well, I think it's a silly argument. It's not either or, it's both and. John's gospel teaches Christology from the top down. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke teach Christology from the bottom up, beginning with his humanity and then revealing his divinity. Verses 5 through 11 in our text have received more attention from scholars and theologians than any other passage in the book. And that's a real, there's a real advantage to that. Every word has been exposed to painstaking scrutiny. Theologians throughout history have used these verses to combat heresies on who Christ is. So there's a real advantage to that. There's also a real disadvantage to that. These verses are often isolated from the broader context. Paul does not sit down and compose this marvelous section on Christ because he thinks, in a hundred years... Docetus will arise and deny the humanity of Jesus. Or, in a hundred years, a few hundred years, Arius will appear to deny the divinity of Jesus. He's not thinking, oh, in a, in a couple thousand years, in 1977, John Hick will edit the myth of God incarnate, dismissing the truth of God becoming man. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit knew that those heresies would come down the road and that we would need passages such as this to stabilize us when theological attacks are launched against our Christ. But Paul writes this Christological feast in the context of selfishness creeping into this local church. He's not getting it out there just to teach it. He's getting this out because the church needs it to fix problems of selfishness and disunity. He throws theology at ethics problems. Paul, do you, do you teach Christology from the top down or the bottom up? Paul responds, look, I don't know what you argue about in your seminary classes, but in the local church, I teach Christology from the inward-outward approach. I preach Jesus Christ to the inner man, and out of that Christology flows humility. Out of that deep doctrine flows unity. And some of you are new here. And you're thinking, Kyle, things are really disunified in my home. Lots of arguing between my spouse and me. Lots of misunderstanding. I, I need a sermon on marriage. Kyle, finances in our home are causing a lot of stress. We're just making poor decision after poor decision. Would you cook up a sermon on finances? 
Kyle, my kids are really selfish. Lots of stomping feet and walking off. Lots of and rolling eyes. I need a sermon on parenting. No. No, you don't. You need a sermon on Christ. Your marriage needs Christology. Your parenting needs Christology. Your finances need Christology. You get your Christology right and everything else will flow out of it. Now that's on an individual level. Let's, let's make it on a corporate level. What does this church need most? Faith, family, church. Not more practical, down-to-earth messages. No, we need high nosebleed theology. Because that will work its way down the mountain and to every aspect of our relationships. The church at Philippi is facing selfishness, inwardness, disunity. They're bickering, misunderstanding one another's motives. So Paul gives them a sermon on communication? No. He gives them high Christology. Unity isn't the result of preaching on unity. It's the result of people adoring and emulating Jesus. The more we behold his glory and imitate his character, the more unified we will be as a church. So here's what I have for you today. Three movements in the text and then some closing applications. Movement number one, it is possible for our local church to lack humility and spend our days in selfishness. Movement number two, when this happens, we must look to the humble Christ. Movement number three, the humble Christ is now and forever the exalted Christ. Let's begin with movement number one. It is possible for our local church to lack humility and spend our days in selfishness. Notice verse one. So if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, pause. Such a basic human problem. <laughs> the problem of disunity. And this local church had it. It wasn't destroying the church, but it was there. And it was festering. Well, Paul actually calls out an example of it in chapter 4, listing people's names. In the verse I read, Paul gives them a fourfold appeal to get unified. Verse 1 is not intended to function as a set of four rational theological arguments, but rather as impassioned pleading. John Chrysostom, who spoke ancient Greek fluently, points out that you can see how earnestly, how intensely Paul gives this heartfelt appeal. And he does it using four if clauses. Now, Paul's not doubting these things. The if refers to certainties, not possibilities. They are your present reality if you are a Christian. And we do no harm to the original author in replacing if with because. Let's try it. Therefore, because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort from love, because there is participation with the Spirit, because there is affection and sympathy. You see, they've experienced deep encouragement in Christ. The voice that speaks to their sorrows and the hand that touches their hurts. They've experienced comfort from love. Does anything lift our spirits more than knowing we are loved by Christ? Paul hopes these sweet recollections of the supernatural in their lives would move them to do what was necessary to ensure their unity. Paul is so emotionally compelling here. He, he's 
He's taking the Philippians back to the graced memories of the supernatural work of the Spirit in the very beginning at the founding of their church. He has activated their spiritual camcorders. For those of you in your 20s, just ask someone in their 30s or older what a, spiritual, what a camcorder is. They've, they've all experienced affection and sympathy from Christ. And together, these motivations remind believers of the cords of love that bind them together as God's people. Let's, let's paraphrase verse 1 and the first line of verse 2. I think it will help us get the emotion. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if His love has made any difference in your life, if being in community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. See the emotional appeal? Verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Now, this may sound strange, but not if you think about it. A minister's joy is often tied to the unity and growth of the church. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. 3 John 4. If you're a parent, you know this well. Proverbs says, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son heartache to his mother. Proverbs 10.1. We just read that in our family devotions. Parents' joy is tied to the maturity and growth of their kids. And Paul, like a father to the Philippian church, naturally longs for the church to be unified. Now, here's a, here's a side note. The pastors of Faith Family Church experience this joy in all of its fullness because of how wonderful the unity of this church is. It is a real pleasure to pastor this church. Sometimes I have pastors call me and they'll say, man, I'm, I'm praying for you. I know it's hard being a pastor. I do this. And I say, it's, I don't doubt it, but I love pastoring. Like, this is a wonderful place to pastor. I'm not experiencing any of that. Paul's vision of unity includes, no, notice verse 2, it's, it's mind, emotions, and will. Let's take a survey. How many of you have ever been into a church that lost unity? Did you raise your hand? Ever been in church? <laughs> Some of you have told me about the nasty church fights you've experienced. Leslie Flynn wrote a book, Great Church Fights. And I'm telling you, it's, it's a comedy you need to read. <laughs> Leslie Flynn, Great Church Fights. He quotes a story from a Welsh newspaper about a church that was looking for a new pastor. Half the church wanted this pastor, and then the other half of the church wanted another pastor. I'll just read his account. Yesterday, two opposing groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to speak above the other. Both called for hymns, and the congregation sang too, each side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into bedlam. Through it all, the two preachers continued to outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, a deacon called a policeman. Two men came in and began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. They advised the... This is going to give it away. They advised the 40 persons in the church to return to their home. The rivals filed out, still arguing. Now, Philippi wasn't this bad. But the seeds of it were there. And this story illustrates what is all too true. Many of the, many of the gravest dangers to the church come from within. And it's always been this way. As Karl Barth astutely remarked 
There are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. Verse 3. Do nothing from two things here. Selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition has no concept of serving, but only aimed at profit and power. I'm naturally bent this way. Naturally. Viewing people like this. Either you will help me accomplish my plans, or you are a liability to my plans. So I will either use you or eliminate you. Selfish ambition. None of that in the local church. Conceit. Conceit is actually not a great translation. The King James, the King Jimmy, uses a, a better word that's really a literal translation. They have vainglory. In Greek, kinodoxia, useless glory, empty glory. Empty glory is the pursuit of honor and admiration that is void and hollow and baseless because it's self-focused. Empty glory chases after likes and hearts and smiley faces on social media. Starving for significance. Cosmically insecure. Our lives are like one big survivor episode. We're on an island of people spending our days saying, I shouldn't be kicked off next. I'm valuable. May you be released from the need to distinguish yourself. Ask yourself this question. Am I competing for people's attention and approval? You could call this glory hunger. hunger, Glory hunger. You know how a drug addict needs more and more of the substance to reach the same high? Why is that? Because the same amount of drugs only produces diminishing results. And in a similar way, this breathless chase after empty glory only increases emptiness inside. And the message for the Philippians and for all of us who are prone to vain glory is clear. Verse 3 continues, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Replacing self-centered pride with other-centered humility. John R. Stott says, At every stage in our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. And it's crazy to me that Paul calls for them to be humble. Because in the secular Greek literature of Jesus' day, the word humility was rarely used. And if it was, it was always used in a derogatory sense of weakness and shame. It carried the idea of being base, unfit, shabby. Masters might look for such self-deprecation in slaves... But no self-respecting Roman citizen should exhibit such a low view of his own significance. Verse 4. Let each of you look. Look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Jesus makes selfish people servants. The word look in the original language literally means to scope out. So scope out ways you can serve others. I want to give you a little formula here that works not only in the church, but in every relationship. Marriage, parent-child, friends, work environment, dating, whatever. It works in every relationship. If you have a selfish person with a selfish person, you're going to have a competitive relationship. 
Always competing jobs, always competing futures, always competing desires. Competitive relationship. If you have a selfish person with a servant person, you'll have a cruel relationship. Always taking advantage of the servant. Sometimes even abusing the servant. It's a cruel relationship. The ideal is the third, a servant and a servant. And if you have that, you'll have a close relationship. If you wake up in the morning and you want to know how to have a good day, ask yourself, how can I serve? How can I help? This will transform your marriage, your close friendships, your work environment, everything. It's easy to do life with servants. My, my wife does this so well. This past week, she received stitches for something, then had the stitches removed, then chopped off part of her finger cooking, had allergic reaction to the medicine, and was covered in hives, slept 30 minutes that night, and still woke up the next morning asking, how can I help you? And I'm like, how can you help me? You have nine fingers. <laughs> how can I help you? Now, what might this look like for us? Offering to take someone's place in the nursery. For you kids, allowing a sibling to have the front seat. Using the bonus check to help someone who is struggling. Listening to that chronically depressed person. Helping rake the lawn for someone, even though they never say thank you. Parking further away so others can have a closer spot. Selling the boat, the car, the RV, the ATV, because it's hindering the amount you can contribute to God's work or takes you away from family. Scope out ways you can serve others. But also scope out times when you can praise others. Last week, I went to Weston's baseball game, and um, lots of kids running around, and lots of parents reliving their childhood through their kids. It's, it's disgusting. Um, while sitting at the dugout, I heard this one kid who is really at the bottom of the team in athleticism, in speed, in giftedness, and he said to the kid who probably has the best glove and the, and the best bat, he said, you hit well, you run fast, you catch good. You do all these things better than I do. And that boy responded, Oh, you're good as well. I've seen you throw the ball. I've seen you run. I've seen you hit. You're just as good as I am. Maybe even better. You keep practicing. Man, you could be the best one in our league. We can learn from these little baseball players. When I was a kid and someone said, You got the best jump shot on the team? I said, don't forget it. <laughs> and that's why the ball is in my hands when the clock is running out. Now, being humble is not downing yourself. This little baseball player wasn't saying, I know you think I hit well, but I'm terrible. I'm a horrible hitter. No, he wasn't saying that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And a humble friendship looks like this. Because some of you are in some very toxic ones. But a humble friendship looks like this. Each friend sees so much to appreciate in the other that they cannot help but find ways to speak compliments to and about each other. Forever enhancing the display of one another's beauties and excellencies. 
Scope out ways you can serve others. Scope out times when you can praise others. And then scope out moments you can play second violin. A conductor of a symphony orchestra was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? He responded without hesitation, second violin. I can find many who can play the first violin. But if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second violin well. Jesus makes proud people humble. And we are trained by default mode of our sinful, nasty hearts to immediately and unconsciously size up others and see how we are more significant than them. Everyone's default is, let me find an area that I'm better than you. And, and, and if you're beating me in any area, I'll find another one where I'm beating you. And, but I have good news for you selfish people. Christ died for self-absorbed, self-glorifying people like us. And he rose on our behalf and now empowers us to follow his example. Movement number one. It is possible for our local church to lack humility and spend our days in selfishness. Movement number two. When this happens, we must look to the humble Christ. Verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's already yours. This isn't anything you have to create or work up. Jesus, it's yours. He's given it to you if you're a child of God. Now, what's recorded in verses 5 through 11 is often called the hymn of Christ. Some scholars believe it's an ancient Christian hymn. At the, at the very least, it was a, a poetic creed, perhaps used liturgically in ancient worship. And modern scholarship has been preoccupied with the question of whether it came originally from Paul or whether he has simply made use of an already existent hymn. I'm not getting in that argument. But I do want to break verses 6 through 8 down. And they break down like this. Christ's humility in heaven, verse 6. Christ's humility on earth, verse 7. Christ's humility in death, verse 8. Let's look at his humility in heaven first, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You have to understand this. This is very important. You have to get this. Jesus didn't become humble on earth. He was eternally humble in heaven. He is the genesis of humility. There is a sense in which Christ wore the servant's towel from eternity because he was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. He was eternally determined to redeem us. And, and before coming to earth, the Messiah, Christ, Jesus, he preexisted in a state of glory and equality with God. There never was a time when Jesus didn't exist. He had no point of origin. He is Alpha and Omega. He is creator. He wasn't created. We differ from many cults and religions on this fundamental point. I want you to see the height from which this king stooped. He was and is equal with God in status and privileges. But he did not regard that equality as a perk to be exploited for his own advantage. He was in the form of God. That's best interpreted against the background of the glory of God. 
that shining light in which, according to the Old Testament, God was pictured. Divine majesty and splendor. That light, the, the, the light from that glory knocked people off their feet. Do you know what kind of glory Jesus had? What kind of beauty Jesus had? The answer is no. You don't know, and I don't know either, but it was wonderful. And notice Paul's wraparound here. You're empty and trying to fill yourself with glory, but, but Jesus was filled with glory and became empty for you. His, his humility didn't start on earth. There's humility in heaven, verse 6. Then there's also humility on earth, verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in, in the likeness of men. During the early part of the 20th century, liberal theologians abused the meaning of this text by developing the kenosis theory. Coming from the Greek word to empty, kenoa, they taught that when Christ emptied himself, he ceased to be God. He stripped himself of all of his attributes, confining himself completely to the creaturely limitations of human nature. But friends, that is not accurate. One of my favorite hymns, And Can It Be?, should be tweaked. The phrase, he emptied himself of all but love, presents some problems. It seems to imply that Jesus emptied himself of other attributes. And if he did, he wouldn't be God. I think we should probably sing there, he emptied himself in humble love. Because Jesus didn't relinquish his deity, he surrendered his rights and prerogatives. He emptied himself not by... This, this is important. Everything I say is important. I hope it is. But there's some things like it's really important. I want God to write it on your heart. He emptied himself not by subtraction but by addition. He emptied himself not by subtraction but by addition. He emptied himself not by the subtraction of his divinity. But by the addition of his humanity. He added to his infinite, unchangeable deity our limited mutual humanity, mysteriously uniting the two natures into one person. Brian Chapel illustrates this idea of Jesus emptying himself by relaying a story from an African missionary. In this particular part of Africa, the chief is the strongest man in the village. As the chief, he also wears a, a very large headdress and ceremonial robes. One day, a man carrying water out of the shaft of a deep well fell and broke his leg and lay helpless at the bottom of the well. To get down to the bottom, one would have to climb down using the alternating slits that go all the way down to the deep well and then climb back up. Because no one was strong enough to carry the helpless man up like this, the chief was summoned. When the chief saw the plight of the man, he laid aside his headdress and his robe, climbed all the way to the bottom, put the injured man on himself, and brought him to safety. He did what no other man could do. And that is what Jesus has done for us. He came to rescue us, and he laid aside his heavenly glory like a chief did with his headdress in order to save us. Now, did the chief cease being the chief when he laid aside his headdress? No, of course not. Did Jesus cease being God when he came to rescue us? No, of course not. John Calvin said Christ laid aside his glory not by lessening it, but by concealing it. 
I mean, he had a pretty good setup in heaven. People all around him crying, holy, holy, holy. And he leaves that for earth. And here's people crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now, if I could have orchestrated the incarnation, incarnation may be a new word, incarnation, God clothed in flesh, incarnation. If I could have orchestrated the incarnation, I would have done it much differently. I would have had Jesus born in Alexandria, the intellectual capital of the world. Or Rome, the political capital of the world. Perhaps Athens, the philosophical capital of the world. Or even Jerusalem, the spiritual capital of the world. But God's plan was different because our need was different. Our need was not education. It was redemption. Our need was not social change. It was salvation. Our need was not religious information. It was spiritual transformation. The king came among us incognito. And the depths to which the king stooped are staggering. Born in a stable, hung on a cross. When Jesus came down, he brought humility to a world of pride. And we don't become humble by focusing on ourselves or focusing on others. We become humble by focusing on Jesus. Christology. J.B. Phillips wrote a fanciful dialogue called The Angel's Point of View. An excellent little read. In it, he writes an imaginary account between a very young angel who was being shown the splendors and glories of the universe by a senior experienced angel. And, and he writes, The little angel was beginning to be tired and a little bored. He had been shown the whirling galaxies and blazing sun, infinite distances in the deathly cold of interstellar space, and to his mind, there seemed to be an awful lot of it all. Finally, he was shown the galaxy of which our planetary system is but a small part. And as the two of them drew near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. And it looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel whose mind was filled with the size and glory of what he had just previously seen. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? That, replied the senior angel solemnly, is the visited planet. Visited, said the little one. You don't mean visited by... Indeed, I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks to you small and insignificant, has been visited by our young prince of glory. And at these words, he bowed his head reverently. From there, Phillips leads the junior angel through the series of revelations about Christ's incarnation that leave him stunned and in shock. Oh, to have fresh eyes and a tender heart as we visit these astounding truths. To live our lives in the spiritual springtime of wonder. To be perpetually knocked out by the realities of Christ. His humility on earth. But we go down. His humility in death. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. 
I want you to note that no one humbled Jesus. Not Herod, not Pilate, not the Romans. No one can humble Jesus. He humbled himself. And the reflexive in the Greek points to a personal decision. Death serves as the rock bottom of Christ's humility. And don't let the word order confuse you. Death was the mode, not the master. Jesus didn't submit to death. Jesus' obedience was yielded to the Father. The cup which the Father had poured. And execution? Execution by crucifixion was reserved for slaves. And this should hit with some of you. Slaves and terrorists. The cross was distasteful for Roman citizens to even mention in conversation. In C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles... He explains the descent and ascent of Christ vividly. And it's it's something that we must understand. The purpose of this incarnation. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space. Down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again. To bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He, He must also disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Friend, having considered Christ ascending down, 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 Let's now consider Christ ascending up, up, up. Movement number one. It is possible for our local church to lack humility and spend our days in selfishness. Movement number two. When this happens, we must look to the humble Christ. Movement number three. The humble Christ is now and forever the exalted Christ. Notice verse nine. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now let's let's stop there. What is this name? I always thought it was Jesus. But I'm not so sure. As we know, Jesus Christ had a lot of names. Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, the Door, the Chief Shepherd. The good shepherd, the great shepherd, the word, the light, the lamb, the bread of life, the rock, the bridegroom, the alpha and omega. So what then is the mysterious name mentioned in Philippians 2? Pelagius thought it was the son of God. Early Latin commentators believed it was simply God. More recently, scholars believe it's simply Jesus. And I would say that's probably the prominent view in our church. But the majority of theologians throughout history say that the name is Lord. And I hold to this as well. So allow me to, to defend it before you start throwing Bibles at me, okay? <laughs> Jesus was his name at birth. We can all agree with that, but this seems to be a new name. The name Jesus doesn't, the name Jesus is mentioned in the, in the next verse, and so it makes you think it's the name Jesus, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. But the name Jesus doesn't fit the upward shift of the passage, which climaxes in verse 11, where it is decla- declared Christ is Lord. Lord is the Greek version of the Old Testament Yahweh. And what a dazzling revelation. 
What an answer to the liberal theologians of the late 19th century and early 20th century who reject the God of the Old Testament and preference for the God of the New Testament. Paul teaches us that Jesus is the sovereign God of both Testaments. By giving Jesus the name Lord, God declared the deity of Jesus. The phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, is probably the earliest Christian confession. And it is shorthand for the gospel. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, this this still mysterious name given to Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let's... um, do a little exercise. Uh, would, you, would you touch a knee, left or right, whichever knee is fine. I'm all about you having freedom, okay? Left or knee. That knee will bow to Christ. Every knee. In heaven, angelic beings. On earth, human beings. Under the earth, dead human beings and fallen spirits. No knee in the universe is excluded, be it human, angelic, or demonic. Verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Both the bent knees and the confessing tongues of all creatures will one day express their universal allegiance to Jesus Christ the Lord. Paul is, is actually quoting here Isaiah 45. Every tongue will confess, even if it's too late, for some of those tongues. What tongues in particular will confess that Jesus is Lord? Well, the tongue of Pilate, the tongue of Caiaphas, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, Nero, Genghis Khan, and every other evil dictator. But that's not all. Famous tongues will also confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We'll hear it from Napoleon, William Shakespeare, Aristotle, Charles Darwin, Isaac Newton, Leonardo da Vinci, Elvis Presley, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Michael Jackson, Princess Diana, Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, Sandra Bullock. Friend, one more tongue. Your tongue. Your tongue will confess him as Lord. The question is, will it be too late when it does? This hymn has this already but not yet dimension. We confess him as Lord now, but we also look forward to a future day in which all will acknowledge the lordship of Christ. History is not like a treadmill, going nowhere. It's all moving to this day. Now, I want to give you four rapid-fire applications. Rapid-fire, that word should be an encouragement to you. Rapid-fire applications. Application number one, memorize this passage. It's a hymn. See how important poetry, music, and creeds are. We're always in need of good writing about sound doctrine. When we write well, people can remember and rejoice in the truths of the gospel. Songs, like the, one we, the new one we sung that was written. It's portable theology. You can take it with you. What a gift we have in Philippians 2. It's memorable. It, and because it's memorable, we can dwell on it regularly. Memorize this passage. Secondly, believe this passage. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? You will. Either now or later. Don't wait until it's too late. Say with the saints from all ages, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
memorize this passage, believe this passage, follow the lifestyle presented in this passage. This is the attitude and the lifestyle that we should pursue. Serve, love, compliment others, meet needs, reflect your good Christology and how you live. Fourthly, let's tell the world about the message of this passage. Our mission is to tell the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if they will confess and believe in Him as such, they will be saved. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.